Hello and welcome to the Telehealth OT podcast where occupational therapists, parents, caregivers, and patients share their telehealth stories. My name is Dr. Reina Oliveira and I am the owner of Telehealth OT Services where we specialize in working with children with autism and also provide education and trainings to occupational therapists about telehealth. I have been able to share my story with the world and now I am extremely happy to give others the opportunity to do the same. Hello, everyone. Today, we have a sort of a different guest. I've been trying to get different stories on the show to keep it interesting. And so I've been seeing a lot of telehealth research pop up on social media lately. So I reached out to a couple of OTs and I got an immediate response from Heidi Carpenter, our guest here today, who is doing research with Dr. Sue Dahl. Papalizio from Arizona State University on the effectiveness and sustainability of telehealth. Welcome, Heidi. Tell us how you got started with occupational therapy. Hi, Irina. Uh, so basically, my name is Heidi Carpenter, and I'm from Arizona. I really got started with occupational therapy because my mom is a retired special education preschool teacher. So I saw the occupational therapist, speech therapist, physical therapist working in her classroom over the years as I was growing up um, in Gilbert, Arizona. And so I thought maybe I wanted to be a speech therapist, maybe I wanted to be a physical therapist. But when I finally got down talking to some advisors, they're like, Heidi, look at occupational therapy. I've always been super creative. And so after I got my undergraduate degree in psychology, I chose occupational therapy. And that's the path I chose. Very nice. So nice, clean story. I feel like some people either have like a super complicated version of like career change path or like the ones that kind of went straight into it. So you sound like you went right into it. (laughs) I changed my major in undergrad quite a few times. Yeah. But (laughs) yeah, by the time I graduated, I knew I wanted to be in healthcare. And I, once I found occupational therapy, I was like, "Mm, yeah, that's it. That's awesome. It's such a good career. Like I can't stop talking about it. I and I don't like it when people really, online are like, "Ah, oh, it's awful." I'm like, what? "Right, right. <laughs> no, I really I really do love it. And it's a mindset, right? Like you can not like anything." Exactly. So, yeah. All right, so tell us how you got how you first got involved with telehealth. I understand that the so, research is not your first um your first exposure to telehealth. No, no. So I actually, in 2017, I went to our national conference when we could all still meet in person. And one of my colleagues uh, in Iowa, she told me that she was working for a company helping them pilot um, a telehealth program for their occupational therapists. The company had started with speech therapists. And they were really looking to expand occupational therapy. So in 2017, I started doing telehealth in the schools, actually. So I was living in Arizona, but providing telehealth services to school-based clients in Missouri. So I did that for a whole school year. And it was great. So the time difference, we were usually like two hours apart. And so I would wake up and be seeing my students like 6 a.m. And my daughter was really young. She was like two months old. And it was, it was really interesting. It was such a great experience to be able to be home 
work, do the telehealth, and then also, um, you know, just experience that and not have to leave the house for a while. (laughs) Yeah. I always tell people like one of the benefits for providers is like you can play with the time zones and that's exactly what you just described. It's like, I can, you know, fix my schedule and just play with the country. Like I want to be in Florida and like practicing in California or vice versa. Yes. Yes. And so, you know, I'd be finished by one o'clock and I'd already worked for seven hours. It was great. Yeah. That's awesome. I love hearing that. And then you get to work from home. That's like another benefit. New mom, like wants to stay home with her newborn, doesn't have to go to, you know, to a building. And Exactly, exactly. It, and, you know, it was funny when I was getting the job because all of the speech therapists were moms too. And so the way they describe it is you're like, yeah, I'd finish up a session, go throw in a load of laundry, go back to my office, see another kid. Yep. And so it just, it worked out perfectly. You know, the occasional kid that canceled, I would have that 30 minutes. We usually had a babysitter if my husband does at school or something. Um, so it just, it worked out absolutely perfectly that first year. And I also got to build my own schedule with the school. Mm. So that was really nice as well. So I don't want to get too, too much into it, but I'd like to hear your perspective on working for a school system doing telehealth then versus like what it appears like to be now. Cause I feel like it's so hectic now. Right, right. And so I do have a couple of friends who have had to switch over to the telehealth model. One's a speech therapist here and the other is an occupational therapist. And they, um, you know, and then also hearing from a lot of our uh, survey respondents from our study, you know, people have done all kinds of things, Um, you know, and not as much direct, so specifically school-based, not as much direct intervention like I used to do as I thought I might see. So they talked a lot about emailing back and forth worksheets or doing phone consultations or um, creating packets. A lot of people have created packets that the parents picked up at the school. Mm. So I have uh, heard a lot of that type of intervention going on. Um, And then for a while, they just didn't know what really what type of intervention to provide. And Mm -hmm. so also another thing that really came through is what do we do with our kids who are really have a really profound disability and i did have the, that classroom when i worked in telehealth in missouri and it's it's a shift of framework it's about coaching it's about caregiver education yes. i was seeing these kids via telehealth you know talking about how to get them to activate a switch or how to do their visual scanning. And it just, I really didn't feel like it was that much different than me not being there Mm -hmm. in person. You know, like if I was there in person, that facilitator was my hands. Now I will say this, the school I worked with, they bought into the telehealth model. And so they were on board. They had their Chromebooks, they had their paras. So every single student I worked with one-on-one had a para with them. So it was easier. And so, yes. And so the paras, you know, as with anybody, some people just have more comfortability with the technology um, or just their communication skills, their teamwork skills. And so we were able to do a lot in terms of coaching the para and then coaching the teacher in some cases 
And I like it because a lot of times in the schools, if it's a pull-out service, I know a lot of clinicians attempt to push in now as much as possible, but if it's a pull-out service, you might not have that chance to talk with the teacher versus uh, like we've all learned with technology, it makes us communicate a lot more via phone, via email. Mm -hmm. And so that can only help the child in their plan of care. Yeah. Yeah. So it's been a big, big shift and I've been, I've never done school-based OT and I've had people ask me and, but my advice is still that change of mindset. Like you just said, like it's telehealth works the best with a coaching model when you have a support system and when not when you're just trying to throw a kid in front of the computer and expect them to do everything on their Mm -hmm. own. So. Right. Exactly. And to use all the resources at our disposal. So like learning how to cast with your phone or emailing worksheets ahead of time that facilitators can print off. Uh, finding websites like I used to use this the highlights website all the time yes. the hidden I pictures love that one. yeah I used to mm-hmm. or for my older kids I would do the um, like what's different and it would be like a more high level picture so we would do a lot of that type of thing with the screen sharing and yeah. That's that. great. Well, thank you for sharing your experience. I always love hearing like, you know, the people, especially from the people that have been doing it before, because I want everyone to really have a clear picture that like this madness that's going on right now, it's not like normal and it's not what telehealth is or was or is supposed to be. Yeah. Yeah. It just, um, you know, I, I feel like we were maybe the early adopters and then it just, there are so many people having to get on board and there really weren't the training programs because everybody who came on before, we just had the time to figure it out or talked with people who were already doing it and had the more one-on-one sessions. I had a colleague at that time who had been doing it a whole semester before me. And so we had several phone calls just like, Hey, what are you doing? What is it looking like? We weren't in a pressure cooker having to figure it out on the fly. Yeah, exactly. All right. So let's jump into the research. Tell us the mouthful title that I wasn't going (laughs) to repeat because I (laughs) I couldn't even write it down fast enough. Okay, here we go. Perspectives on the effectiveness and sustainability of telehealth as a platform for the provision of occupational therapy. Reflections on experiences during COVID. Wow. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. So give us all of the details. Like how many people were surveyed? What was the method? I mean, go through all of the all everything. Right, right. So this was a this was a survey model. So we sent out the survey to the presidents of the state associations, the listservs. And the, they had instructions that they could forward the survey as well. We also targeted Facebook groups to post the survey as well. We didn't get as much response from the Facebook groups, actually. So all 50 states had access to the survey. We had representation from a little over 30 of the states, and we had a total of 230 respondents fill out our survey. We used Google Forms for our survey. And when we were building the survey, we had a focus group. 
to help us. We already had our basic questions. And so we did a focus group with Arizona practitioners to make sure we were on the right track and was asking the questions in a way that would get the response we were looking for, um, that make sure everything wasn't confusing. So we had 32 states represented. And let's see what else. This really came out of a need to support uh, telehealth services in Arizona. We had, we have a piece of legislation um, in our legislature right now. And when they finally get back to doing governmental things again, we are hoping that this survey, now that it's published, will be able to support the use of telehealth. So there's no questions asked that we should definitely be doing telehealth, including using the telephone. So that wasn't something that was originally included, but we made sure to include it on our survey. And we found out that practitioners were indeed using the telephone in some cases. So I think one thing that I really took from the survey is, you know, people really used the provisions that the government allowed us to in terms of not always using a HIPAA compliant platform, mm -hmm. using the telephone, like people really are using whatever is available, attempting to make it work. And that's pretty inspiring to me. I mean, we're adaptable as humans and it's really good to see that people are really attempting to use whatever they have at their disposal to continue providing services. We did have a lot of school-based practitioners respond. We also had a lot of pediatric practitioners respond. In the state of Arizona, we have a lot of um, in-home pediatric services provided. And so a lot of those people were our respondents to the survey. So you mentioned a few things. I love that you had a focus group. I actually, um, someone reached out to me as, you know, a telehealth expert to look at their um, research survey and make sure that the questions like read appropriately, that the terminology that was being used was appropriate. And so, you know, I like that. I feel like that really increases the, I don't know, I forget the right research word, but the validity. Uh, the validity, the, user. Mm -hmm. the reliability yeah of the yep. of the research and so that that seems like a really important step and i love that you guys did that um the other thing that you mentioned was about like the you know hipaa compliant and practitioners using using anything available to you know move forward and i do see what you're like the positives of that but I still feel like I have such a strong opinion and we can talk about this. Like, I feel like I just have such a strong opinion about this whole, um, you know, going with the government and just using non-HIPAA compliance stuff just to get it done. And I know that in a bind, people were just like, Hey, let's just do it. And let's just take care of our, of our, um, of our patients. But my advice is always like, if you can, like, don't, take those shortcuts because in the end, it's just going to be more complicated to like switch everything. Agreed. I absolutely 100% agree that we should always be using a HIPAA compliant platform when like anytime you can. And so, you know, the big one is Zoom, right? So we asked our practitioners what platform they used and overwhelmingly people used Zoom. Um, now I have my own business just on the side. And so when I started it, I looked into, I love Google. I love Google products. And so their BAA 
I forget exactly what it stands for. Business, you probably know. Business associate agreement. Yes. So their package for the professional side of, you know, getting your email address, using all of your products like drive email that make it HIPAA compliant is really affordable. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's less than a hundred dollars a year. And so I just got on there, signed my BAA. There are definitely tutorials how to do it. It's really easy. And then Google meet yep. seriously works just like zoom. So I have done a handful of telehealth evals via Google meet. Sometimes parents will tell me, Oh, I just want to use zoom. Please let's use zoom. And I'm like, okay, fine. But I'm not paying that $200 a month. Like I don't do this full time. And so it just doesn't make sense. I'm going to use my Google meet. Um, but yes, I fully support the use of always using a HIPAA compliant platform. Yeah. So that there was a lot of conversation about Zoom versus Zoom for healthcare. And there, I think there's still confusion about like, is Zoom HIPAA compliant? And I'm going to like scream it from the rooftops, like not unless you're using the healthcare version. Um, but yeah, right, Google right. is six, $6 a month. Like it's super affordable. Um, there's also like doxy.me that has a free version and they have a BAA. There's so many options. And that's why I felt so strongly about like, don't take these shortcuts. There's options. There's so many more options coming out now. Um, I'm actually working with a telehealth company that's doing a per minute uh, fee. And so for people like you who only maybe need like, you know, one or two calls a week, it'll be even more affordable because the fees are just so low. Now's the perfect time to tell you about better telehealth. This is the platform I was speaking to Heidi about. And as I mentioned, the calls are per minute. It is only three cents per minute per call. And for a 45 minute session, that comes out to $1.35. Super affordable for OTs who are seeing a few clients, but want all the added features such as automatic reminders, the ability to have the client sign the consent to treat, and even troubleshooting for audio and video. Better Telehealth has amazing features. Check out the link in the show notes for more information. And now back to the show. So there's so many options. I'm like, don't do it. Don't do it. Yeah. Just, I mean, we had some respondents tell us they were using WhatsApp. I don't even know how that's possible. Like, I don't understand how that's possible. (laughs) But, um, you know, that, that's the data, right? We can't manipulate the data. We just have to take it in. Oh man. So, um, it, we are, I really liked our survey because we had, um, we had a layer scale for a lot of questions, but then we also had that open-ended response at the end, which I love. I love, 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 love qualitative analysis. And, um, I love getting that rich lived experience narrative from the people and theming that and coding it and seeing what the data is, the information is really telling us. Mm -hmm. So that's the, the main contribution I feel like I made to the study is spending a lot of time with that qualitative data. Um, you know, anybody can do quantitative, like just yeah. into a spreadsheet, get the numbers. Um, fine. It's all good. Yes. It is fun to run it through SPSS and see what's significant and what's not. Um, we didn't, our questions weren't formed. It wasn't like sophisticated enough to like do that type of, um, analysis with like t-tests and things like that mm-hmm. um we would have to take it another step to do that type of right study 
but this introductory study is really nice at telling us exactly kind of the pros and cons and what people are actually doing. So what were like the most interesting things that you read from the qualitative part? Well, uh, I definitely think everybody should go read the the study, obviously. But, um, you know, we had people tell us, you know, okay, so lack of personal contact. Some people felt they just had to be there in person for something, let's say, like more NDT intervention for early intervention. So some people would say, I just have to be there in person. I have to have my hands on that toddler helping them facilitate their position. Okay. We had another person tell us it is so amazing to coach the parent and how to position their child and facilitate movements. And it's so great to see that via the telehealth model and coach the parent and the parent feels so empowered that they now can have these skills to work on with their child versus, you know, me just being in the home for an hour and them not being really involved in the session. And then I just leave. So we had people that would just tell us, no, I have to have my hands on them. And others say, I'm really glad I got to coach the parent through it. So those types of, uh, differences, compare and contrast. Yeah. Those differences were very, very interesting to me. I love that. I actually just had done, I think, um, a live recently on my personal page about like three mistakes that will cost you your OT career. And one was that like thinking that you have to use your hands to be an occupational therapist, obviously relating it to telehealth. Like for those people that are still stuck in that, like I have to use my hands to make this work. I'm like, no, you don't like, you just have to be open-minded to a different way, which is a coaching model and instructing a parent, caregiver, or a helper to do what you would normally do, which is uncomfortable. Like, I'm not going to lie. It's uncomfortable in the beginning. But once you get used to that- It can definitely be uncomfortable. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And this is just me hypothesizing, but I think that can be uncomfortable for a lot of different reasons. Like if practitioners are super young, fresh out of school, especially in pediatrics, say they don't have kids. I remember I was a completely different practitioner the way I worked with kids before I had a child and after I have a child. Way more sympathetic now. (laughs) Yeah, me too. I 100% agree with that. I used to have parents always ask me, do you have kids? And I was always like in my mind, like, what does it matter if I have kids or not? Like I am, I specialize in like child development. I don't need to have my own kids. And now I'm like, oh yeah, like (laughs) I totally get it now. (laughs) Yep, yep. My colleagues and I would like, prepare these two pages of home program. <laughs> and then we all had babies at the same time. <laughs> yeah. I shrunk down to like two a items. Paragraph. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I know. Like so, I used to tell parents like every diaper change. And now like every time I change a diaper, I'm like, I'm not doing that. Every diaper change. Like what was I asking for? Like that is just insane. Oh man. So yeah. And I think, I think that's another, we saw glimpses of that with the reporting just in terms of the practitioners really did start to see what was feasible for, for their clients and, um, not related to the study, but I have a colleague here in town who specializes in, um, a very specific pulmonary condition 
And she said telehealth helped her tremendously because she would have people cancel appointments because they didn't feel like leaving their house. Right. And so now she can do telehealth with them. They can be in their bed and she is providing the intervention to them. So just, we also saw that in the study, just practitioners really finding what families and clients are capable of doing in their daily life, which makes our therapy more meaningful and more effective for them. Exactly. Yeah. And there's this whole conversation of like, is it appropriate for everyone? And I've had this debate with a close colleague of mine and she says, you know, yes. And I say no. Um, but it, it is measuring that like initially it is meeting with the family and seeing like if it's a good fit. And obviously that's in the ideal world where you can choose your telehealth clients, not when you're thrown into it, but it's such a big part of the process seeing like, is this family a really good fit for telehealth for various reasons? Are they mentally capable? Are they, do they have the technology availability? Do they have the support system in place? And so many more questions. Mm -hmm. That support system is huge. And also, um, you know, we had some practitioners tell us their no-show rate went way down. We had others tell us it went way up. And so that goes so much to speak with, are they in the headspace to do the therapy to be invested? Yeah. Um, Because they can't use that hour to like go run an errand or something else. So we, we did see that. And it overwhelmingly came across that it's not appropriate for everybody. And here's another, it's good for some, not for others. We saw a theme definitely emerge that there's more access, rural areas, uh, people who would have to drive an hour and a half to get to an appointment. But on the flip side, some people don't have internet access, reliable internet access. Sometimes the phone can be a substitute for that, but not always. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point and something that I actually have lived to where I invited someone to do a telehealth session when I was first starting and she was saying that it would be great, but her internet just doesn't hold up and she's in a rural area. Um, so it's like, yeah, telehealth started as access for the rural community, but if you don't have the internet to you know, sustain a call, then it's just not going to work. So that's an excellent right, point right. too. And, you know, something that I thought about a lot before the pandemic, and there are some articles that look at this, are like a hybrid model. So does somebody come into the clinic for the first time in person, and then the next two or three sessions are telehealth? Right. And so you get that experience of establishing rapport in person, which is different. And then you have that carrying through in your telehealth sessions. Yeah, that's – I love – I love telling people about the hybrid model. I think it's such a great, like, especially for clinics, um, especially for in-home providers as well. I think it's such a good balance of, hey, you don't feel really great. You don't want someone in your home or there's traffic or rain. Let's just do a telehealth call and it's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And and then you don't kind of lose the magic of the really cool stuff sensory clinics or, you know, if somebody needs that specific hand therapy equipment, right. uh, like, an, you know, so you can bridge those. I always tend to make pediatric examples because that's my favorite area of practice, but Same. There, there are the, the, the adult world out there as well, stroke rehab and all of that. 
Yeah. So there's sometimes equipment in the clinic you just want to be able to use and show your patients. Yeah, definitely. But then when you're going to like the more functional stuff, then you don't have to like go play pretend at the rehab apartment. You can actually go do it in their home. So Exactly. So yep. a- and that was actually some oh go for it. No, go ahead, go ahead. I was just going to say that's some so in my full-time job I'm just coming back from maternity leave, but in my full-time job I do home health adults. And so when we moved to offering telehealth as an option back in March, April, when we just didn't know what the world would look like in six months, we definitely had concerns because a lot of our home health work is transfer training. And how can that be safe via telehealth? And so we ended up not doing as much as we thought we would. But, um, you know, we just talked about the importance of the prep to different types of transfers. And again, that caregiver education. So did you end up doing transfer training via telehealth? This is something that I feel like very few people can speak to. So I sadly did not, (laughs) but I still might get to because, um, because our company still has it and who knows what the winter will bring. My gosh, hopefully nothing too severe, but we never know. And so I actually only used telehealth to like finish people up on my caseload. So it was a lot of home exercise program and things like that. But we did talk through, like we had a client we were thinking we were going to have to do transfer training with. And so we thought a lot about how we would coach her mom through that. And um, it became a lot about being as safe as possible. Like it would have been a bed to wheelchair transfer. So just talking about this, uh, you know, setting up the slide board and it had been something we had done with them in person. So we just thought about breaking it down to the smallest steps and then just being able to coach the caregivers. This individual was a woman in her late forties. And so her brother who was like this big, strong guy and her mom were her primary go-to people. And so it would have just been a lot of talking through sideboard transfers, um, you know, doing the assist at the knee, like using the gate belt properly. So we didn't get to do it in person, like in live to actually do it, but we, we thought it through because we were going to have to. Yeah. And then we just didn't end up doing it. We didn't have to, we could kept, we got to keep going to see her in person. Yeah. I think that's like one thing that scares me, but I have heard of, I gotta, I gotta get his name. There's an OT in, uh, I think Australia who has been doing it and I'd love to hear more about it. But as I'm hearing you talk, I'm like thinking about what I would, uh, what I would equate it to in like peds. And I have, I don't know if you've heard me share my story if I've, I don't know if I've shared it on the podcast, but um, of how I taught like a boy how to ride his bike. Like you think I'd have to be there like hands on to make sure he didn't fall. But like, I didn't, I just was able to do it from a distance and coach mom through it. And he didn't fall and hurt himself and things that could have gone wrong. Didn't go wrong. Thank goodness. But that's amazing. I love that. If I can do that, then I think we can do a transfer training. It's just really nerve wracking, obviously. Right. Right. Um, so I wanted to ask you a question that is kind of just, I don't, I don't know, just like stuck out of my mind from, cause I have a lot of 
it goes back to your participation, which I think your numbers are really good, to be honest. I don't know how long you were standing out surveys for, but 32 states represented is a lot and 230 people OTs or is it all OTs or OTAs as well? So practitioners. So, yep. So both uh, assistants and therapists. And we had the survey open, I want to say for about four weeks. Oh my gosh. And yeah, numbers are really good. Mm-hmm. And so let's see, 83% were therapists and 17% were assistants. That is, that's amazing. I, I think these numbers are really excellent. My question is, is because there's so many people doing surveys now on social media and I, and I've approved some in the Facebook group and I've had people comment, OTs or OTA practitioners comment that the survey was just too long. And so they just like X out of it. Do you feel like your, the survey that you guys did was like a good length? How did you go about like analyzing that, you know, that part of the process? So I'm, I'm glad you, you're talking about this because I am a stickler for you only ask what you need to ask. And I think our, our primary investigator is like that too. She has a ton of experience. And so our survey was only 15 questions. That's great. And of course, yeah, of course we could have asked more, of course. But honestly, if you think about it, like it's not everything in the kitchen sink. Like it is, we had very specific research questions. We were answering a specific set of problems because our, our why was we wanted to support this for our legislature so that therapists could use, so practitioners could use telehealth in the future. And so that was our goal of this study. Um, so 15 questions, get her done. <laughs> um, I love it. You can always go back and do another study. Yeah. Like you can do a follow-up with like deeper. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And so what I found too, you know, with a study like this, that's pretty, you know, it's exploratory. We want to find out information is that you like what the survey tells you, if it's your first survey, you want it to be short because you want to see what else it's telling you. If you spend months and months and come up with a novel of a survey, like people aren't aren't going to tell you as much information. They're not even going to take it. Like you said, they're going to stop. They're going to stop in the middle of it. So if you do a short survey, you ask what you really want to ask, then you're always going to be told with the responses, what you should ask next. Next. So like for, yeah. And like for us, we found out that designing a training program would be really valuable. Mm. And so we, like, we also didn't ask questions like, how comfortable people were with the technology or like if they were using it before or after the pandemic, because for our questions, it didn't matter. Yes. It's very interesting to me. I'm all about like technology adoption and what are the barriers, but I really had to just sit on my hands this time because that wasn't the purpose of this survey. It wasn't the purpose of the study. That's a whole different study. Mm -hmm. I love that. I love how focused you are. I'm going to be honest. Like there's so, there's so many that came through that I didn't even open them, but I did like try to share them with, with everyone. But I was interested in like seeing people's responses that they're like, um, I'm not participating in it. And it just made me feel so bad. I'm like, oh my gosh, like what is going on with this, with this research or this survey that people don't want to participate when typically like 
I feel like OTs would, you know, spend, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes on, on doing a, a survey, but for whatever reason, I don't remember which one it was and I don't want to call anybody out, but that one, they were just like, I'm not doing this. And so I'm glad to hear that you guys thought about that process and took into consideration what your focus was and not really devi- deviating from that. Yeah. And what can be helpful too is if people find a survey they like that's already been published um, and ask the authors if they can use it again, say they have a different population, say somebody found a survey like used with telehealth with physicians, they could ask that group if they could use it again for occupational therapy practitioners. Mm-hmm. And using a survey again can be really powerful in t- like on the back end. Oh, I love that. I never would have thought about that. That's a good point. I didn't tell everyone, but before we hit record, you were talking about how much you love research and it clearly shows. So you can share a little bit about what you did before. <laughs> I have the research bug and I think I've just always been a super, super curious person. Uh, but during my entry level doctorate at Creighton, I did two extra research projects <laughs> and... <laughs> So I, I really do. I love research. Uh, it's just, it doesn't have to be scary. Oh, and then for part of my capstone, I was the research, like was the instructor's assistant for the research class. So I, I've done my fair amount of research, but you know, that was really how I got involved in this project is because I am in my sixth year of practice and I want to create a space for me to be a clinician researcher. Mm -hmm. And there isn't a lot of space for that. It, you know, at some big institutions or hospitals or faculty members, you know, they have the space and the structure of their job allows them to do research. But I mean, I work in home health full time and I contract with a pediatric company. It's not in the business model for me to be doing research. Mm -hmm. Or like if you own your own business, that's usually not really the focus either, although it'd be nice if it was. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm figuring out a way. <laughs> you get back to us because I'm sure a lot of us would love to participate. <laughs> well, you know, that's just the thing. In Arizona, we have two, this is crazy, we have two doctorates starting within the next year and a half. And so what it's creating is five OT schools in the Phoenix area. And that creates a lot of students who are hungry to do research. And so what I'm hoping is that we can continue to create relationships with clinicians who are out in the field, who have all the experience, and the students and the faculty who have the resources to do the research. So that's, you know, how this project basically happens. Yeah, that is such a good, I love, first of all, you said relationships, that word to me is like golden in business and in anything. Like that's what we have to do is take the time to build relationships, doing things like this, interviews, guest speaking, whatever, like just exposure to each other and learn to appreciate each other as a profession overall Um, and collaboration with, with other practitioners, with students. Like I just, Oh, that's like, that's my jam. Relationships and collaboration, all about it. Yeah. I mean, what else do we really have? Um, You know, I think we would be doing occupational therapy if we were getting paid for it or not. And how would we be doing that? 
because of our relationships. Exactly. Exactly. All right, Heidi, we're going to wrap up. Will you just tell everyone where they can find the study? Yes. So our study, we're in final revisions right now. Uh, I think a few emails even came through while we were on this call. Uh, But it's going to be published in the International Journal for Telerehabilitation later this year. Very nice. I like that one. Well, congratulations on all your hard work and you just keep chugging along and let us know what you've been up to. I love following everybody's progress. So thank you. Thank you. I think I'm a member of your group, the yeah, Facebook OT Facebook group. Um, it is like 8,000 people now. I don't even know where they're finding it anymore. <laughs> Amazing. I love it. Thank you so much for your work on this, Rena. You're welcome. Thanks for being here. Take care. If you're an occupational therapist and you want to know more about telehealth, be sure to join the Telehealth OT Facebook group for more information. I'll catch you on the next episode.